0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: Welcome to The Sci-Files, an IMPACT 89FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou
0: and Daniel Puentes. Between the stars that burn out in space to the atoms that make up our bodies, one of the big questions scientists are tackling is understanding how the elements were forged.
1: Today we're here with Tamas Budner, who's a nuclear astrophysicist. Before we get into your research first, Tamis, can you tell us first what is a nuclear astrophysicist?
2: The field of nuclear astrophysics seeks to understand the inner workings of stars by studying their nuclear reactions that are occurring inside them. Much of the modern research centers on the fundamental question of where did the chemical elements that make up the world around us come from? I'm an experimentalist, so the work that I do is very much centered on studying individual nuclei and their properties and help us to get a better understanding of what is going on inside in these stars as they evolve over time.
0: Thanks for joining us this morning, Tamas. You talked a little bit about how there is different research organizations that are studying what happens with the relationship between these stars and the nuclei that are inside of them, but before we even get into the weeds of that, could you talk a little bit about what is a nucleus?
2: around us is made of atoms as i'm sure you've probably heard of before but inside of every atom is a nucleus and the nucleus is much much smaller than the atom itself but that is where most of the mass is concentrated it's made up of positively charged protons and neutrally charged neutrons and that means that they don't interact with the force of electricity basically
1: thanks for explaining that to us how does studying nuclei tell us what's going on inside of stars and how does that tell us what's also happening as they evolve over time?
2: Stars are made of what's called plasma. So that's an ionized gas. If you took a gas and made it really hot, all of the electrons would be ripped from the nuclei and it would just be floating in this sort of cloud of positively charged ions, which is just the nucleus, and negatively charged electrons. And so these nuclei that are whizzing around at relatively high speeds can collide with each other and have a reaction. And this generally doesn't happen on Earth because things are generally too cool. Things are condensed down into atoms. And so atoms are neutrally charged and they're not moving very fast and they don't collide with each other. But inside stars, you can have these nuclear reactions, which when you take one nucleus and it interacts with another nucleus, it can have a reaction and you get a different product depending on the parent nuclei that you have. So understanding these nuclear reactions on a more fundamental level can tell us how we expect the star to behave and learn more about its properties. Stars are made of what is called plasma, So if you think of the three states of matter that you learn about in middle school, you have solids, liquids, and gases. But uh, you could think of plasma as a really hot gas. And it's so hot that the electrons are actually ripped from their positively charged nucleus, and they can become free electrons, leaving a positively charged ion behind where you have the nucleus and maybe a couple electrons that are hanging out around it. And so in this relatively hot environment, these nuclei can interact with each other. And generally, they just repel because they have the same charge. But occasionally, they have enough energy that they can interact with each other in a more interesting way, and they can actually create a totally different nucleus. So that is what we call a nuclear reaction. And nuclear astrophysicists study the nuclear reactions that occur inside stars, and that can be used To learn more about the star's properties.
0: It's really cool to hear about how the temperatures inside of these stars can be so hot that it can rip those electrons off of the atoms and leave behind sometimes just a bare nucleus. I don't think people actually understand just how hard it is to get two nuclei to interact with each other and form a nuclear reaction. But hey, as the temperature gets harder and hotter, it gets easier and easier. You mentioned how these nuclear reactions can actually lead to different nuclei being created. I'm curious, are some of the nuclei that exist here on Earth in their elemental form the same as what you would see inside of a star that's being produced?
2: Many of the same elements that exist here on Earth are also in the cores of stars. However, when stars explode, they can produce a bunch of new elements that we observe here on Earth that previous to that star exploding didn't exist in the world. So these exploding stars can be factories for new elements. Another thing that's slightly different between the elements that exist here on Earth and those that we would observe in stars is that elements are constantly being created in a stellar system. So some of those elements that are created are actually going to be radioactive. Now, Whether or not an element is radioactive depends on the number of protons and neutrons that are inside that element's nucleus. Nuclei that have too many protons or too many neutrons are considered unstable. These unstable elements can decay in a variety of different ways. We refer to this phenomenon as radioactivity. Both stable and radioactive elements are produced in stars, but because radioactive elements are so short-lived, they often decay away into stable daughter elements. When radioactive nuclei decay, they can emit a variety of different types of radiation, like protons, or neutrons, or electrons, or even high-energy rays of light. When this happens, the nucleus is fundamentally changed and either becomes a different version of the same element or changes into a completely different element. This is known as the daughter nucleus.
1: Thank you for this background in nuclear astrophysics, Tamas. Now to transition a little bit more. What are you specifically focusing on with your research with nuclear astrophysics?
2: Sometimes white dwarfs can exist in what's known as a stellar binary. A stellar binary is a system of two stars that orbit a common center of mass. In fact, a large fraction of the stars that we see up in the night sky are actually stellar binaries. When a white dwarf is in a binary system with a star like our sun, it can begin to siphon material from the star's outer layers. This hydrogen-rich material is then heated and compressed, mixing with the dense material of the underlying white dwarf. This eventually triggers a runaway thermonuclear explosion. These violent explosions are known as classical novae, and they synthesize a bunch of new elements in the process and eject the nuclear reaction products into space.
1: Since we have so many elements here on Earth, what elements are you studying specifically in these stars, and why are they so important?
2: I'm particularly interested in one specific nuclear reaction that happens in these classical novae. It involves a phosphorus nucleus capturing a proton to form a sulfur nucleus. Now, most elemental phosphorus and sulfur we find on Earth is stable, but in the hydrogen rich environment on the surface of a white dwarf undergoing a nova explosion, these nuclei don't have enough neutrons to remain stable. So they undergo what's called radioactive beta decay, turning a proton into a neutron.
0: I think that's really interesting about how different elements could be produced depending on the types of environments that they could be found in. In particular, why are you studying this specific nuclear reaction and, how does, and why is that important for different nuclear astrophysics regarding classical novae?
2: So it turns out that this particular thermonuclear reaction is really important for understanding a variety of different properties related to nova. Properties like how hot they can get and what elements they synthesize. We think that some of the material made in novae and ejected into space actually ends up here on Earth in the form of presolar grains.
1: This reminds me of our episode that we had this past summer with Adam Kwash about classical novae. Though something we didn't mention in that episode was a term you just mentioned, presolar grains. What do you mean by a presolar grain?
2: These are known as presolar grains because they were formed before the sun. Our solar system formed about 4.6 billion years ago when a spinning cloud of dust and gas condensed to form the sun and all of the planets. This ancient dust cloud was relatively well mixed, but impurities, tiny, tiny impurities solidified in microscopic crystals got incorporated into that dust cloud and made their way into rocks that ended up orbiting the sun to this day. Some of these space rocks have fallen to the earth in the form of meteorites. And inside these space rocks, we can find tiny little presolar grains, which have isotopic compositions different from the rocks found elsewhere in the solar system.
0: It's pretty crazy to think about how there's material that exists here on Earth that was created before the sun had formed in the center of our solar system. You had mentioned that these materials can have differing isotopic compositions comparatively to the rocks that are found anywhere in our solar system, including here on Earth. Could you explain to us what it means to study the isotopic composition of a rock and why that's important for things like nuclear physics?
2: So chemical elements are defined by the number of protons in their nucleus. But nuclei of the same chemical element can have different numbers of neutrons. These are known as isotopes. Take, for example, the element silicon. It's very abundant in the Earth's crust, and we use it to make our computer chips. And all silicon nuclei have 14 protons. Most of the silicon nuclei found here on Earth have 14 neutrons, but some isotopes of silicon have more neutrons and some have fewer. It turns out that the pre-solar grains we're interested in contain highly enriched levels of the isotope silicon-30, a stable nucleus with 14 protons and 16 neutrons. It's possible that the silicon nuclei in these grains were forged in nova explosions. It's
1: cool that these silicon nuclei are formed in explosions, However, that makes me wonder, how are you particularly able to investigate this? I recall that you had said these pre-solar grains were incorporated within the meteorites that orbit our sun and that can sometimes reach our Earth. Do you have to depend on those meteorites to reach the Earth, or does this reaction occur naturally over here, or do you need to produce this reaction in a laboratory?
2: So some people's research revolves around the chemistry used to separate these grains from the surrounding meteorite. Then they analyze the chemical and isotopic compositions of the rocks that they find inside. My research at the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory, it's right here on campus at MSU, our group has been working to understand the nuclear reactions that ultimately lead to the synthesis of these grains. We can't actually recreate the stellar environment necessary to facilitate this specific reaction. Again, that's that proton capture onto this radioactive phosphorus. We can't actually make that reaction happen on Earth, but we can do something that's almost as good. We can constrain it indirectly by studying the individual properties of the nuclei involved, which potentially could lead to the production of these grains.
1: I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to visit the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory, also known as the NSCL, before the pandemic happened. However, I wasn't able to find out every single experiment that occurs in there, What are you specifically doing at the NSCL? How do you study the properties of radioactive nuclei in your experiments at the NSCL?
2: Well, I know Danny knows the answers to this because he he studies the mass of individual nuclei. The stuff that my research group works on is the different ways in which these radioactive nuclei can decay. At NSCL, stable nuclei are accelerated in a large circular device known as a cyclotron and collided with a thin metal target foil. This causes the nuclei to break apart into a bunch of different fragments. These fragments are then filtered through a series of magnets before being delivered to an experimental vault where we can study the nuclei of interest. We measure things like how long they live before they decay and what kinds of radiation they emit. For my PhD thesis experiment, we built a gas-filled detector to measure the protons emitted from a highly excited sulfur nucleus.
0: Yeah, Tamus, as a fellow NSCL employee, I can really relate to that enthusiasm that you share towards your work in nuclear astrophysics. However, since we're not in the same research group, how do your experiments differ from others within the laboratory? And what is a typical experiment like?
2: Well, I can't speak for all the experimenters at the NSCL. I mean, every year there are hundreds of scientists from around the world who come to Michigan State to use this world class facility. Generally, for my experiments, most of the hard work is done in preparation for the actual measurement. This involves testing our detectors, assembling our setup in the experimental vault, writing software to process the huge amounts of data that we end up collecting. By the time it comes to measure the radioactive beam produced by the cyclotron, ideally, we should just be able to click a button and start collecting data on our computer. My experiment took up to a week, but generally that doesn't happen. It's not quite that easy. We spend lots of times tinkering with things, fixing broken components, staring at the computer screen as the data rolls in, and wondering why it looks the way that it does. Ultimately, an experiment is successful if we measure what we set out to measure. But of course, experimentalists spend months or even years afterwards analyzing all the details of their data set, looking for new and interesting findings. That's kind of where I'm at right now with my experimental data set. I would made my measurement back in 2018, and I'm just now writing the paper on my
0: results. While it's unfortunate that we won't be able to actually talk too much about the results of your work, I'm looking forward to reading it in a future publication that'll come out hopefully within the year. Here on the Sci-Files, we always try to humanize the scientists that we're bringing on to our show to show that people that do science are also normal people too. Despite the fact that we're still plagued by this pandemic going on right now, could you tell us a little bit about what you do outside of the laboratory and what kind of interests you have?
2: For fun, generally,
0: before you know the pandemic happened, I
2: used to train martial arts several times a week. I like going to the gym and I like just hanging out with friends and doing stuff on the weekend, traveling when I can. That's always cool. Since I haven't been able to do much of that, I guess I've been playing a lot of video games and arguing with people on the internet. That's a new hobby of mine.
1: Well, Tamas, I'm more of a lover and not a fighter, so I don't know much about martial arts. Do you focus on a specific style of martial arts?
2: Yeah, so over the past couple years in grad school, I actually knew a couple people who trained at a place called KSK Martial Arts in Lansing. There were some fellow physicists who train there, and basically it's Jeet Kune style school. So that's sort of in the, the lineage of Dan and Asano and Bruce Lee. Uh, it's a lot of Filipino martial arts mixed in with some Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff. So I found that it's a good creative outlet and a way for me after a long day of work to sort of let loose and express myself while also getting some exercise in.
0: I used to participate actually in my local judo club whenever I was growing up, but I've actually never heard of these other fighting styles. So it's really interesting to learn about that variation of martial arts that you had just described for us. Thanks for coming in to talk to us about your research, James, and a little bit about what you do outside of the lab. We really appreciate it. And good luck with the rest of your work. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky. Station Manager, Joe Dandrin, and General Manager, Jeremy Whiting.
1: The SciFiles can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org.
0: Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.